she runs along a street that she um, where she used to go to school and Grossman refers to it as her running down the burning street of her life. Hello and welcome back to the Vintage Podcast with me, Lena Norms. Now, just as War and Peace is a great epic about Napoleon's invasion of Russia, so is Grossman's two long novels, Stalingrad and Life and Fate, are the great epic about Hitler's invasion of the Soviet Union. But until recently, it's only been Life and Fate, the second of Grossman's two Stalingrad novels, that has been available in English. It's kind of like if we only had the second half of War and Peace, we didn't even know the first half existed. In its day, the Soviet Union allowed three versions of the novel to be published over a very short period of time in Russian, all with varying levels of censorship. I got the chance to speak to Robert Chandler, who is the translator of Grossman's epic Stalingrad, the prequel to Life and Fate, to explain why the novel has only been published in English for the first time in 50 years after it was written, and what it was like to excavate a novel from the hands of a censor. So Robert, thank you so much for talking to us today. I'm really excited to talk about Stalingrad. Um, I want to grill you about all the amazing different aspects of this incredible thousand page novel. Um, but I know that you'd, you'd like to read us a few extracts from it first. Um, tell us a little bit about what you're going to read and, and please go ahead. Well, this is um, this novel is has a great deal in it that was um, is closely based on Grossman's own experiences at the time. He was a war correspondent on the front line for um, most of the four years of the Soviet-German part of the war. Um, he kept notebooks. He actually wrote two novels that relate to Stalingrad. Um, this, called Stalingrad, is the first. And... Um, I think it's actually the greater novel. It's full of all kinds of very vivid glimpses of scenes, of um, dialogue. It's got a lot of passages in it that are from his notebooks. Um, the later novel, Life and Fate, which for various reasons is actually better known at present, is more of a sort of considered philosophical and moral statement. So some people um, admire Life and Fate more for that reason. Other people actually prefer the sort of greater vividness of um, Stalingrad. One remarkable quality of Grossman is that one actually can't, without knowledge, one couldn't tell the difference between the bits which he witnessed himself and the bits which are secondhand. And um, this passage, which is about the very first day of the German invasion, actually isn't something he witnessed himself. And one other remarkable thing about it is that it's both very, very precise and real, and it also has a kind of sort of cosmic quality. So this character, this Colonel Novikov, just happens to be on the westernmost frontier of the Soviet Union when the Germans invade. And he's, um, he's billeted with a Soviet fighter regiment whose home at that time, what had once been a Polish manor house. The Germans invaded on midsummer, 1941. In the darkness, Mowikov went up to the window and glanced abstractedly with sleepy indifference at the sky and the quiet nighttime garden. 
he would remember more than once just how casually he had looked for the last time at the world of peace. He woke up with a precise awareness that something terrible had happened, but with no idea what this might be. He saw tiny crumbs of alabaster on the parquet floor and glimmers of orange on the crystal pendants of the chandelier. He saw black scraps of smoke against a dirty red sky. He had a woman wail. He had the cries of crows and jackdaws. He had a crash that shook the walls and at the same time a faint whining sound in the sky. And though this whining was quiet and even melodic, it was this that made Novikov shudder in horror as he jumped out of bed. He saw and heard all this in a fraction of a second. Just as he was in his underwear, he ran towards the door. Then, unexpectedly, he found himself saying, steady now, and he walked back to his bed to get dressed. He forced himself to do up all the buttons on his tunic. He adjusted his belt, straightened his holster, and walked downstairs at a measured pace. Later, in newspapers and journals, he often came across the phrase, a surprise attack. How, he wondered, could anyone who had not experienced the war's first minutes ever understand what these words really meant? Men were running along the corridor, some in uniform, some only half-dressed. Everyone was asking questions. No one was replying. Had the petrol tanks caught fire? A bomb? A military exercise? Saboteurs? Some pilots were already standing on the steps outside. One, with no belt around his tunic, pointed towards the city and said, Comrades, look! There! Flames the colour of dark blood were climbing up over the railway station and embankments swelling and ballooning into the sky. At ground level, there were the flashes of repeated explosions. Black planes were circling like gnats in the bright, deathly air. It's a provocation, someone shouted. And another, quiet yet clearly audible voice, pronounced with awful certainty, Comrades, Germany has attacked the Soviet Union. Everyone to the airstrip. Soon after this came a moment that lodged itself in Novikov's memory with a particular sharpness. As he hurried after the pilots dashing towards the airstrip, he stopped in the middle of the garden where only a few hours earlier he'd gone for a stroll. There was a silence during which it seemed that everything was unchanged. The earth, the grass, the benches, the wicker table under the trees, a card chessboard, dominoes still lying scattered about. In that silence, with the wall of foliage shielding him from the flames and smoke, 
Norvik felt a lacerating sense of historical change that was almost more than he could bear. It was a sense of hurtling movement, similar, perhaps, to what someone might experience if they could glimpse, if they could sense on their skin and with every cell of their being, the Earth's terrible hurtling through the infinity of the universe. This change was irrevocable, and although only a millimeter lay between Norvikov's present life and the shore of his previous life, there was no force that could cancel out this gap. The gap was growing, widening. It could already be measured in meters, in kilometers. The life and time that Norvikov still sensed as his own were already being transformed into the past, into history, into something about which people would soon be saying, yes, that's how people lived and thought before the war. And a nebulous future was swiftly becoming his present. At that instant, he remembered Jania, and it seemed to him that his thoughts about her would accompany him throughout this new life. Wow, that's an amazing passage. And it kind of really shows the kind of minutiae and personal experience against the kind of more historical significance. Yeah. That's a really incredible um, passage. Um, tell us a little bit um, about uh, your experience with the work, because you, you translated Life and Fate about 30 years ago, am I right? Yes. Yeah. So what, what um, drew you to translating um, Stalingrad now? Um, and tell us a little bit about that gap as well. Yeah. Soviet writers have, um, for the main part, they've only got attention in the West when there's been some major political scandal. So um, Dr. Zhivago was um, top of the New York bestsellers list for over a year um, because there was a huge international scandal and he was awarded the Nobel Prize and the Soviet government um, bullied him not to accept it. And so you know, the Soviet government unwittingly gave Pasternak fantastic publicity. Um, similarly, Solzhenitsyn got huge publicity. I mean, he was getting a lot of publicity anyway. It's a well-known dissident. But when he was exiled to the West, um, that you know, again got him a huge, huge boost of popularity. Um, very great writers who weren't the subject of any major scandal like this um, tended not to get noticed in the West. There's a very, very great writer called Andrei Platonov, who he was always on the borderline of what was publishable. Some of his work was published in the Soviet Union, and some of it wasn't published till 50 years after his death, but there was never any major scandal about him. So he's relatively little known, although many people see him as the greatest 20th century Russian writer. Um, as for Grossman, um, he got a certain amount of attention during the war and immediately after the war. Um, some of his work was translated into English. Um, then he rather got forgotten. Then um, A Life and Fate got a lot of publicity because um, it hadn't been known about at all. And then suddenly 
um, this Russian edition was published in the West. A Russian edition was published in Switzerland. And um, there was sort of huge excitement about it because it turned out that the KGB had confiscated the manuscript 20 years before this. And um, it was a you know, very, very fiercely dissident novel indeed. Um, more so really than anything by Solzhenitsyn. In it, Grossman draws a very, very emphatic parallel between the Hitler regime and the Stalin regime, saying that they are mirror images of each other. So a life and fate was noticed and um, a Russian friend of mine drew it to my attention. And um, I wrote a bit about it in a, a magazine called Index on Censorship. And that was noticed by a publisher. And um, I was asked to translate it. Um, the conventional view at the time, and a lot of authoritative people who should have known better were repeating this, you know, a lot of good Russian writers, was that Life and Fate was a great work, and, um, but that you know, Grossman um, had just completely transformed as a writer, that uh, stuff he'd published before in the Soviet Union was just nothing like as interesting, but it was just kind of standard Soviet stuff, or slightly better than average Soviet socialist realism. Um, and uh, um, I translated other books by Grossman. Um, I translated some of his very great short stories that he wrote in the last few years of his life. And they're published under the title The Road. And another very, very dissident short novel called Everything Flows. Um, but I always... Um, I was, you know, I, re I read slowly in Russian and I had so many people I respect being dismissive about Stalingrad that I was slow to read it. And um, then a, a very good historian, an American historian of the Soviet Union called Jochen Helbeck, um, told me that I was you know, completely wrong, um, that Stalingrad eminently deserved publication. And... Um, so I read it and um, you know, quite quickly realized that um, there were passages in it that were, I think, actually greater than anything in life and fate, certainly as great. And um, the added thing that's important here is that the version of um, Stalingrad that was published in the Soviet Union, it does include some very, very great and moving passages, um, the defense of uh, there's a Soviet battalion that gets encircled in the Stalingrad railway station and um, the chapters devoted to their sort of doomed defence. Um, that was published and it's very, very fine indeed. Um, but there's a great deal in Grossman's earlier typescripts, a lot of passages that are um, a little bit too funny, a little bit too ironic, um, to to be to have been acceptable to the Soviet authorities, there's a great deal in these early typescripts that we were able to get from the archives, um, which is really you know funnier and more interesting and more unexpected than anything in the published novel. So our version of this novel, because I I inserted um, a lot of these passages, I mean several hundred of them, into the text. 
So our version of the novel is actually more complete than anything that has yet been published in any language. Because I, I think that um, sometimes our idea of censorship is is um, the idea of literally just taking out words or taking out like bits of text, um, and and that's it. But do you think it's also it's it's you were just saying about humour and tone? Like how how does how did you have to do a bit of research into how like censorship in in Soviet Russia worked and 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 how do we have like I think I have a very basic understanding of censorship basically and it sounds like it's lots a lot more complicated yeah, than that. This is fascinating <laughs> mm. and uh, it, I did it in several steps. I mean my first step was just um, comparing three different Soviet published versions of the novel. So there's a 1952 before Stalin's death which is the most heavily censored, 1954, just after Stalin's death, and 1956, during the so-called Thor, which mm. is um, the least censored of these three editions. And it was fascinating to see, it was a real education to see the differences. And um, they weren't, a lot of them weren't the kind of things I was expected expecting. Um, it wasn't just a matter of politics. It wasn't a matter of only of, you know, the some of the passages about the early Soviet defeats in the war being edited out of the earlier versions. Often it was more a matter of tone. Um, the Stalinist era was terribly straight-laced. Um, everything had to be... I mean, Stalingrad is such a... The Battle of Stalingrad is um, so fundamental to the sort of legitimacy of the Soviet regime. It's really how it established itself. So everything connected to it has to be grand. It has to be serious. There's no room for anything silly, no room for anything frivolous, no room for anything sort of petty. So, um, you know, passages where sort of senior military commanders were joking or just sort of behaving a bit sillily or, you know, getting... Um, carried away by sort of trying to get hold of good, good wine and food or something. They all got edited out, and um, particularly strikingly, the insects all got edited out. So there's a, you know, there's there are a lot of lice and fleas and everything in the um, in the typescripts, and most of them got edited out of the published version, and sometimes. Um, Sometimes you can, it's, you know, it's extraordinary to imagine the kind of bargaining that must have been going on between Grossman and his editors, um, trying to sort of get some of these things accepted. So um, one particularly funny example was there's, um, there's a very slovenly soldier in an infantry battalion. And um, I think in the published version, um, Whenever there's an inspection, um, this soldier always has buttons missing on his uniform and this is wrong with him and that is wrong with him. And he was the only soldier on whom they would find lice. That's the published version. The, the typescript is the more lice on him than on any other soldier. So, you know, these sort of incredibly small... Different. Imagine that you know, Grossman was um, having to. That was what he'd originally written, and I think that's what he managed to get reinserted into the 1956 
edition. But what what's the logic there? Do you understand? Like why? Or is it just the idea well, of them being like dirty and they don't want that kind it's of just, stuff? It's just it's just it's just un, un, unacceptable. You could you just can't be talking about the Battle of Stalingrad and lice in the same breath. I mean the 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 monuments to the Battle of Stalingrad they're fantastic. They're grandiose. Mm. It's like um. I mean, it is very difficult for us to imagine, and I said that I, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have guessed a lot of these things. Yeah, I think that's it's that's just so strange. It's kind of like this thing of like you, they don't want this. It's like an untouchable, the untouchable mythology of it can't also include the reality of being a human being. Everything should be perfect, you know. Yeah. Tell me about um, why you love the novel so much. What is it about Grossman's writing that kind of sets it apart from other writing of, of that time? And it has a fantastic eye for detail. It has a, a very clear sense of the importance of individuals. He was an amazing listener. Um, he was able to get people to, when he was working as a journalist, he somehow had the ability to get anyone to talk freely to him. So whether it was, you know, a very taciturn soldier or high up leadership, um, he was, you know, he was constantly amazing other journalists by his ability to get them to talk freely to him. And they clearly spoke. The reason they did speak so freely to him was that they sensed that he was interested in them as individuals. And that comes over in his writing. And, um, is equally caring and attentive, whether he's um, writing about you know totally unknown, unimportant, more or less anonymous people, or whether he's writing about um, top Soviet generals or, or or Hitler or Stalin, for that matter. A close friend and a valued, treasured collaborator, Boris Draluk, he, he wrote something very nice in a message just the other day um, about how um, Grossman and another Russian writer called Tefi, and they both um, kind of share a quality in Chekhov that he described as a, a doctorly rather than clinical attitude to their characters. A lot of moments of kind of redemption, you know, when someone, um, when someone suddenly... And something suddenly shifts in someone. It's a very moving passage I was just looking at, where um, a nurse, who's just a, she's just a sort of eighteen-year-old nurse in the Stalingrad hospital. Um, she's there's nothing particularly remarkable about her. She's quite silly and selfish in lots of ways. Um, there's a huge bombing raid on Stalingrad, the first time the war really comes to Stalingrad. And the hospital catches fire, and um, she 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 runs away. She um, runs quite some way from the hospital. She runs along a street that she um, where she used to go to school. And Grossman refers to it as her running down the burning street of her life. And then suddenly something changes, and you know, she doesn't know why. Grossman doesn't really even explain why himself. He sort of gives about ten possible reasons. And she suddenly stops and um, runs back to the hospital, starts, you know, very, very courageously 
um, carrying out wounded soldiers from the upper stories of the hospital. And um, there are a lot of these kind of moments in Grossman's writing, and it's something clearly that you know, if you particularly concerned him with sort of what happens, what makes someone change in that way. listening to the vintage podcast if you're looking for a big epic read this summer stalingrad has to be the one it's just come out in paperback so super easy easy to carry around with you as well if you enjoyed this episode why not take a scroll backwards to our huge back catalogue we've been going for years and years and years now so i'm sure there'll be lots of stuff for you to discover and if you want more reading recommendations to add to your summer tbr do make sure you're following us on instagram and twitter at vintage books thank you so much for listening i've been lena norms and until next time Thank you.